0: You are now listening to the June 6th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings.
1: Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Last time we saw how David first became king of the tribe of Judah and then eventually ascended to the kingship over all of Israel. All that was done according to God's plan and guidance. God united Israel as one, not in human time and tactics, but in his own time and in his own way. Today, we'll reflect on the story of David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Once David became king over all of Israel, he saw the need to find a way for the tribes that had been divided to come together. To do this, he decided to move the capital of Israel to a new city for a fresh start. For the new capital, he chose the fortress of Jebus, where the Jebusites had been living. As some of you might have guessed, this fortress later came to be known as Jerusalem. The fortress of Jebus was located in a high place at an elevation of 2,683 feet. It was as if the topography of the land made this city into a natural fortress. Any potential invaders would have had to first fight the ascending slope before they even reached the city. That is perhaps why for 400 years from the time of Joshua, The Israelites couldn't drive out the Jebusites from the city. So conquering that city was not a trivial matter, even for King David. In fact, when David and his soldiers marched against the city, the Jebusites in the fortress mocked them. Knowing he was being mocked by his foe, David didn't get upset or hastily start the battle. Instead, he approached the battle by first looking for the enemy's weakness. He instinctively knew... It had to do with how they get their water. After some investigation, David found out that the Jebusites drew water from the Gion River in the East Valley outside the fortress. And there was a water shaft that transported water from the river to the city. David saw this as an opportunity. He planned to enter the fortress of the Jebusites through the water shaft. David built a barrier under the fortress to block the view and dug an underground tunnel. Then at night, he entered the fortress through the tunnel. The Jebusite soldiers were totally caught off guard, and they were easily subdued by the Israelite soldiers. The battle ended in Israel's victory. David took up residence in the city and called it the City of David. It was also called the Fortress of Zion. Later, Solomon, David's son, built a temple there, and Jerusalem became the center of Israel's military politics, and religion. Once he took up residence in Jerusalem, King David wanted more than anything else to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city. He yearned for the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence. This sacred object was also known under different names, like the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of God. The Ark of the Covenant contained two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel a pot that stored manna, and Aaron's rod that had budded. Yes, the ark was a sacred object, but in terms of its physical size, it wasn't that big. It was shaped like a rectangular box, the length was 2.5 cubits, and the width and the height were 1.5 cubits. In today's measurement, it would be 47 inches long and 30 inches wide and high. So it wasn't so big. As far as the materials used, it was made of acacia wood. The interior and exterior of the Ark was covered entirely with gold. It also had a gold molding around it. Also, in four corners, there were four gold rings for the poles to be inserted. The poles were made of acacia wood, covered in gold. When moving the Ark of the Covenant, they had to insert the poles into the gold rings and carry it on their shoulders without touching the ark. The ones carrying the poles had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi from the twelve tribes of Israel. Among the Levites, only the descendants of Levi's second son, Kohath, were allowed to move the ark. The lid or the covering on top of the ark was also important. Known as a mercy seat, it was made of gold, and there were two cherubim at each end of the covering. The cherubim had their wings spread upward and their faces were turned toward the covering. From this mercy seat, the splendor of God's glory appeared as light above the tabernacle. During the day it appeared as a cloud of glory, and at night it appeared as brilliant light. Therefore the people were able to see it from a distance and knew that God was with them. Since the days of Joshua, The Ark of the Covenant had been in the tabernacle located in Shiloh. Then the sons of Eli and the priest took the Ark of the Covenant with them to battle against the Philistines. You may recall from a few weeks back that these sons of Eli did wicked things before God. They were defeated and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. Afterwards, strange things started to happen to the Philistines. Upon returning, they moved the Ark of the Covenant to the Temple of Dagon in the Philistine region of Ashdod. The next morning, the Philistines found the statue of Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the Ark. The next day, Dagon not only had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark, but both of his hands were also cut off. Further, the people in Ashdod became afflicted with nasty tumors. The Philistines then decided to move the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Gath. However, when the Ark of the Covenant arrived in Gath, there was an outbreak of tumors as well. Then the Ark was moved to Ekron. Needless to say, the people of Ekron were terrified, trembling in fear that the Ark of the Covenant came to them. In all, the Ark of the Covenant stayed in the Philistine land for seven months, and they saw nothing but trouble. So the Philistines decided to give it back to Israel. It was returned to Joshua's field in Beth Shemesh. The Israelites rejoiced. However, the people of Beth Shemesh looked into the Ark of the Covenant, even though they knew about the Ark's sacredness and were told not to touch it, let alone open it. As a consequence, many people died. Eventually, the Ark of the Covenant came to stay in Abinadab's house on the hill of Kiriath-Jerim. The Ark of the Covenant remained there for 20 years until David became king. After conquering the fortress of Jebus, David wanted to move the Ark to Jerusalem. David felt the need to have the Ark of the Covenant back at the center of Israel. This concludes our story for today. I'll see you next time from Story of Kings. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
2: The days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord, and these are the days of your servant Moses' righteousness being restored. And though these are days of great trial, of famine, and darkness, and sword, still we of the voice in the desert, crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, the Holy comes, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun, at the trumpet call, lift your voice. voice, it's a hero you believe. out of Zion's hill. are the days of Ezekiel, the dry bones becoming as flesh. And these are the days of your servant David rebuilding a temple of praise. And these are the days of the harvest, the fields are as white in the world. And we are the Love Like Jehovah, there's no God like Jehovah. 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 Behold, he comes.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Jehovah Mekedesh, the God who sanctifies. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
3: There are certain characteristics that all human beings have in common, regardless of gender, regardless of where you live, socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter. There are certain things that we have in common that we all do, um, or have. And uh, some of those things that we do or that we have in common are, some of them are very obvious and some are less obvious. Now, one of the less obvious characteristics that we have in common is that we all regularly set things apart. We set things apart. We do it all the time. Let me prove it to you. How many of you have China, fine China that you have set aside and only use on specific days? How many of you have fine China? Yeah. Now, I was told that the younger generation isn't doing this anymore, but though, you know, I was given China, I was given some China. Um, I, I'm William Albert Miter II. <laughs> Don't I sound distinguished? I was named after my uncle. He's long since dead, but the only thing he ever gave me was his China. So I still have his China and I feel guilty for getting rid of it. So I got to hold on to it. And by the way, I'm a big garage seller. You know what people are selling all the time? They're China. If you need China, just let me know. I will get you China because it's selling it. And by the way, if you're if you're going to pass your China on to somebody who doesn't want it, sell it at a garage sale, and the person who buys it will want it. So that you know that way you can ensure because the younger generation just doesn't want it. But um, we set aside China and things like this for special occasions. Let me give you another example. How many of you have a special outfit that you set aside and you only wear on specific occasions, ladies? It might be a dress right? Men, it might be a tuxedo. Remember how many of you grew up and you had your Sunday best? Remember your Sunday best? Right. Those were clothes that you only wore to church or on special occasions. And of course, in this day and age, the Sunday best is kind of blended in and we don't necessarily have that. But those of you that grew up in a day and age where it's your your parents told you, your grandparents told you, go put on your church clothes because we're going to church. Sometimes we set aside other things. We set aside money so that we can go on vacation uh, or, so that we can retire, whatever it might be, whether you know it or not you 're probably setting things apart more often than you realize now, the reason I tell you all this is because today we turn our attention to a name of God that you it might be new to many of you, uh, but the concept isn't new to you you're you're very familiar with the concept and and the name that we 're going to be looking at is Jehovah. Jehovah Jehovah Makedesh. Okay, so say it with me. Let's practice our Hebrew. Jehovah Makedesh. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. I looked at a bunch of different, it's spelled different ways and different people put different things on it. But Jehovah Makedesh is how I saw most people pronouncing it. And it simply translates the God who sets apart. The God who sets apart or the God who sanctifies because the word sanctifies literally means to set apart. So we follow a God who does what we do. We're constantly setting things aside. And guess what? The God that we follow does the exact same thing. But here's where it's interesting. God's not setting aside fine china. He's not setting aside outfits. He's setting aside you. He's setting aside you and me. He is the God that has set us apart. So I'd like to take us to the Bible today, Exodus chapter 31. This is the first time we are introduced to this name, Jehovah Makedesh. Exodus 31, 13. Here's what it says. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, remember, when you see the word Lord and it's in all caps in your English Bible and most English Bibles, it is the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew. Jehovah is the Latinized version of it, but it's the same thing. It means uh, God. Jehovah Makedesh. And that's the first time that we're introduced to it. It's not the only time, of course. Leviticus 2018 says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, Jehovah Makedesh. Now, one of the reasons that God sets us apart is because God himself is someone who is set apart. Specifically, what sets God apart is his holiness. See, when the Bible says that God is the God who sanctifies us or sets us apart, it means that he's setting us apart to be a holy people in an unholy world. And the reason he's setting us apart to be holy is because God himself is set apart as holy. Leviticus 19 says this, "'Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, "'You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy.'" God's saying, listen, I'm set apart. I'm different from the world. The world is full of sin. I am not. I'm holy. I'm pure. I'm righteous in every way. And God isn't just kind of holy. He is perfectly holy. He is good, pure, and holy on a level, folks, that you and I cannot possibly comprehend. How do I know that? Because the Bible says as much. There is none holy like the Lord. None. He is the holy of holies. He is the holiest of all people of all beings that you could ever imagine. Just for a moment, think about the holiest person you've ever met in your life, the most godly, holy person you've ever known in your life. That person had obviously an impact on you. You, you go, gosh, that person just loves God. They're, they're set apart. They're holy in all that they do. Folks, they do not hold a candle to our God. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is not even a shadow or hint of anything impure in God. Listen to what Isaiah says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I mean, we might, God is so holy, we can just call him holy. His name is holy. But look at what it says. I dwell in a high and holy place. So according to this verse, God himself is set apart in holiness and he resides in heaven, which itself is described as a high and holy place, meaning it too is set apart. So God is set apart in heaven, which is set apart, and he is calling you and I to be set apart in this world that we live in. He is the God that sets people apart. And that is why, folks, it's really imperative that as Christians, that every day we wake up, we remind ourselves we're a very unique people. We are a very unique people. We are a people who have been called out of the world and into fellowship with God, out of the world, and separate to live holy lives in an unholy world. And that's why, folks, it really confuses me. It really confuses me when so many Christian leaders and so many Christian churches are trying to fit into the world and trying to be accepted by the world and trying to be liked by the world. When our very calling is to come out of the world and to be separate from it. It's almost like we as Christians are embarrassed that God has set us apart. God has set us over here and we're over here and we're going, wow, I'm over here, but I really want the people over there to like me. You know, I really want the people in Hollywood to like me. And I really want the people in Washington to like me. I want to, so here's what I'm going to do. I know God has put me over here, but I'm just going to go this way. I'm just going to slide myself over here because now over here, they're going to like me. And so we begin to compromise. The church begins to compromise. Christians begin to compromise. We do so because we desperately want them to speak well of us. In many cases, we do this just because we love the approval of men more than the approval of God. That's what it comes down to. Listen, folks, I have very sobering news for you today. The approval of man and the approval of God are absolutely, positively, 100% mutually exclusive. They are 100% mutually exclusive. And do you need proof of that? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. For He's going to rattle off a series of six questions to start this passage. Listen to the six questions. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? What, what accord does Christ have with any other religion? None. Zero. Zip. Nada. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is what it says. Therefore, go out from their midst, go out from their midst, separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, go out of their midst and separate from them. We follow a God who has set us apart. Why then do we find ourselves walking back to the world? We find ourselves walking back to the world in many cases as church leaders and, and Christians is because we want to be liked by them. And yet Paul's saying, listen, there's nothing, you have nothing in common with them. God has pulled you out of that and put you over here. Be happy that you're here. Praise God that you're here. Amen. Amen. You used to be over there and you, were, you thought it was great to be over there, but the truth is it's miserable over there. It's, just, it's darkness. It's full of idols. It's worldly. Over here, there's light and joy and peace. Let's not be ashamed for where God has put us. What is truly tragic is that the modern church has divorced the gospel from a call to separate from the world. Think about it just for a moment. We are calling people to believe in Christ while not calling them to forsake their sin. That's what I mean when I say we have divorced the gospel from a call to separate from the world. We are calling upon people to believe in Christ while not calling them on them to forsake their sin. We are calling people into the body of Christ while not calling them out of the world. Sadly, this word, the word repentance, has all but disappeared from many modern day presentations of the gospel. To repent literally means I'm walking this direction and I turn and I do an about face and I go back. I, I walk this direction. I'm going here and I say, no, I'm turning and I'm going this way. Because the call of the Christian is not just to come and believe in Christ, but to separate yourself unto him. He is the God that sets us apart for himself. We water down the gospel thinking we're doing people a favor. Let's not tell him the hard stuff. When in fact, we are doing more damage. We're doing damage on a scarcely comprehensible in some cases, we're so desperate to tell people that we won someone to Christ. And, and this is a pressure for us as pastors and elders of churches. People always go, well, how many people have come to Christ under your ministry? I don't know. Well, you should know. I, I don't. I, I, I could get people to raise their hands. I can dim the lights and get the music playing just right and get people to raise their hands. But that doesn't mean that they genuinely put their faith in Christ. We are so desperate in some cases to win people to Christ that we will tell them almost anything or not tell them the things they need to know in order to get them to raise their hand or walk the aisle. By the way, do you want proof that Jesus himself saw repentance and separation from the world as part of the gospel message? Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 10. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' (laughs) Don't you dream about this? You're at Costco and somebody runs up to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? We, we dream about these things. I do, at least. Unfortunately, people at church see me at Costco and it's like the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> They're like, oh, there's Pastor Bill. <laughs> good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on to say this, you know the commandments, Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he had really been trying. But then it goes on to say this, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. So this rich young man has an idol in his life, an idol that he is unwilling to surrender in order to come to Christ. And sadly, this man goes away sorrowful, unwilling to to, to forsake the thing that he truly loves. His heart is truly with his money, not with God. And Jesus identifies this and calls him to repent and turn from it, and he won't. You see, the rich man wanted salvation on his terms, and his terms were, give me the assurance of salvation, and let me live however I want. But the problem is, is that we don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. He wanted us to be assured that he was going to heaven, even though he was in love with the things of this world. And when Jesus tells him to forsake his sin, to repent of his sin, he walks away. He walks away from Christ, and it's sad. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are 100% saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is a repentant faith. In other words, you will know that you have true saving faith because you will see the fruit of repentance in your life. Listen, everybody claims to be a Christian. Everybody claims to have faith in Christ. How do you know who's a Christian? By the fruit that they bear. And one of the fruits that you're looking for is the fruit of repentance. And nobody repents perfectly. I'm not saying that you repent perfectly. I've been a Christian for 33 years and my life is one of continual repentance because I find myself, God has set me apart over here. He set me to be holy in an unholy world. And I find myself going back to the unholiness. And when I do, I repent and I turn and I go, you know what? No, God has set me over here. He has set me apart. I set me apart from the world. And I need to remember that and repent and turn to him. Now, here's the deal. When most Christians think about being set apart, we think about holiness. God has set me apart to live a holy life in an unholy world. This is what he's doing. He's sanctifying us and making us more holy. But it is not the only reason that God sets us apart. Listen, God sanctifies our hearts because he is going to sanctify our work. He has set us over here to live a holy life because he has set us over here to serve him. He has set us apart not only to live a holy life, but a life of service unto him. Exodus 19 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Listen, folks, God has set you over here not only to live a holy life, but the reason he's got you living a holy life is because he's got a holy calling upon your life to be a priest for him in this generation. Amen? Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, folks, God has set you apart so he can put you to work. God has set you aside so that he can put you to work. He has sanctified your heart So, because he is going to sanctify your work. It only makes sense that a priest have a holy heart. The one doing the work of the Lord have a holy heart. Now again, this interfaces with the heart of the gospel, and here's how. The gospel isn't just a call to turn and trust in Christ. It is a call to come and serve him with all of your life. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. All of your life now belongs to me. This is the heart of the gospel. When a person becomes a follower of Christ, their life is no longer theirs. Let me ask you, if somebody runs up to you in Costco and says, what must do I do to inherit eternal life? What would you tell them? Would you be honest if they had an idol in their life and tell them, repent and turn from it? Would you tell them that your, their life is no longer theirs and that when they come to Christ, they are at his mercy? They are at, He is the master. He is going to call the shots. Would you tell them that? Too many people are under the impression that we can accept Jesus and then go back to our old worldly pursuits, laboring for temporal causes that have absolutely no eternal significance. The problem with that is you and I have been set apart to be a royal priesthood. That's what Peter says, a royal priesthood. You know what that means, folks? You're not just any type of priest, you are a royal priest, which means you are a royal, kingly, you are in a royal, kingly, regal line of priests. It's a magnificent, glorious, grand, and noble priesthood, and it has to be. You want to know why? Because you are serving the one true, glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. It only makes sense that the priests that serve him are a royal priesthood. You and I have been set aside for this very purpose. Folks, there is no higher calling in this life. Nothing even comes close. God himself has set you and me apart for this high, heavenly, and holy calling. He could not have set us aside for anything greater And that is why, folks, when we think of him, we call him Jehovah Makedesh, the God that has set me aside to live a holy life in this generation, the God that has set me aside to serve him as a royal priest in this generation. And that is why when we utter his name, Jehovah Makedesh, we utter it with joy in our hearts. You want to know why? Because what God has done with your life and my life is nothing short of a miracle. Is nothing short of a miracle. What do I mean by that? God has taken broken jars of clay and set them aside for the highest most noble calling in this lifetime to serve the one true god in holiness paul says it this way but we have these treasures and jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to god and not to us not to us and yet so often i lose sight of this now listen everything i've said to you so far I'm gonna. What I'm about to share with you is the most important thing. So if you get nothing from my message, just get this. Are you guys with me? I often lose sight of this. I often lose sight of the fact that God has set me aside to live a holy life in an unholy world. He has set me aside to serve him as a kingdom, to serve as a royal priest, him in this generation. I lose sight of that. And I know if I lose sight of it, you lose sight of it. And here's why this is important. It is easy to wake up every single day of your life and think it's a typical day and I'm a typical person. I cannot tell you how many times I wake up each and every day and I think to myself, it's a typical day and I'm a typical person. Folks, there could be nothing further from the truth because this is the day that the Lord has made and he has set me aside to serve him in this generation. Amen? That's the truth. This is the day the Lord has made and he has set me aside. From everyone else, he has set me aside to serve him as a priest and a kingdom, in in his eternal kingdom. This isn't a typical day, and I'm not a typical person. And the same truth applies for you too. Listen, I'm a pastor, and I wake up on Sundays, and I get to come here and preach. And there's days I wake up, and I go, it's a typical day, and I'm just a typical guy. It's not a typical day, and I'm not a typical guy. This is a day the Lord has made, and he has set me and you aside to serve him in this generation. you got to believe it. Whatever you do, folks, do not let today pass without fulfilling your high and noble calling. You are unique. Listen, this is why I think the Bible says even angels long to look into these things. Angels are fascinated that God has set you and me aside. David even said, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you even care for him? What is it about us, God? We are broken jars of clay, and yet you've taken us out of the darkness of this world, set us aside, sanctified our hearts, and given us this holy calling. What is man that you're mindful of him? I'm sure the angels will always probably be perplexed by this, as should you and I. What are we? And yet God has done this very thing for us. God has done this very thing for us. Folks, whatever you do, do not let today pass without understanding your significance in this generation. You are extremely, extremely significant. God has a high, holy, and heavenly calling on your life. He sets you aside at the right time. He took your life, took it out of where it was, and put it someplace special so that you can serve Him. You are a royal priest set apart to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, it's so, what's so interesting about what we are now? The Bible talks about you and I as in these terms that we are literally God's treasured possession. We are God's treasured possession. So, for example, when we set stuff aside, we set it aside and when we do we're saying it's a treasured possession, right? So for example, how many of you men in here were given a watch by their father or grandfather? Just and not all of us got that, but some of us got watches. How many of you ladies got a ring from a grandma or a grandpa or grandma or grandma or mom who was handed down? How many of you got rings? Yes. So we get things like this and what we do is we set those aside because They're treasured to us. There's something, it's not a common watch. It's not a common ring. This is a treasured ring because it belonged to my mom or it belonged to my dad. And so we set it aside and it becomes treasured to us. In the same way, when God sets us apart, it's God's way of indicating that we are his treasured possession. Again, look at what it says in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you you shall be my treasured possession among all the people for all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter alludes to this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You know who you belong to? You belong to God. He has set you aside so that you can serve him in this generation. He has sanctified you. You are one of the ones, the lucky ones that have been set apart. And you know why this is important? Here's why it's important. Because life has a way of wearing us down. Life has a way of making us feel small. Life has a way of grinding on us, doesn't it? It sure does. And we wake up, it grinds on us, life grinds us to the, on us to the point where we wake up and we go, I'm just a typical guy and it's just a typical day. And we lose sight of who God has made us to be. Folks, you are the most unique people in all the world. Don't lose sight of that. You have been set apart by God himself to serve him in this generation. Whatever you do, don't run back to the world. You don't have to, you no longer need the world's approval. Don't be tempted by the world that, oh gosh, if I can just get the world to love me, then my life will have significance. You don't need it. Your life has significance because God has sanctified you and set you apart. And if his eyes are the only eyes that see what you do in this lifetime, be content with that. Be content with the praise of one, with the audience of one, forsaking the accolades of millions for the audience of one. Life has a way of making us feel small and insignificant. And I have no doubt that there are many of you in here that are feeling the same way that I do on many days. I'm just a typical person. It's just a typical day. Folks, it's not. This is the day the Lord has made, and you are someone that God has set aside, you and you alone. 2 Timothy says this, Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I can ask a tough question. As one who is set apart, are you flirting with the things of this world? As one who has been set apart, are you looking to the world for your accolades? Are you looking back to the things of this world for your significance? Don't. God has set you apart. His eyes are upon you. He has sanctified your heart and he's given you of the high and holy calling of serving him as a priest in this generation. And whatever you do, do not for a second think it's a typical day and you're a typical person. This is a day the Lord has made and he has set me aside to serve him in it. Amen? You remember that? And you wake up each day and you go, God, what is my assignment? I'm here. I'm yours. I'm here to serve you. Put me to work. And he will. If you have eyes to see and the faith to believe that God will use you in significant ways, he will. And significant by, by the way, when I say significant ways, I mean significant ways, eternally speaking. You may do nothing of significance by worldly standards in this lifetime. Who cares? Stop trying to do what is significant in the eyes of the world. It doesn't matter. As long as you are doing what God has called you to do, and if He is the only one who sees what you are doing, be content with that because you are doing eternal work. Amen? And folks, remember so here's the challenge. I got a challenge for you. Every day this week, for the next seven days, every time you set something aside, I want you to remember the name Jehovah Makedesh. Fair enough? Now, here's the deal. Some of you, before you leave today, are going to set things aside and you're going to get home and you're going to set things aside. But just for the fun of it, I want you to try to take a mental, every time you do it, or in your house, when you see your husband or a kid, one of your kids set something aside, you remember that I follow a God that does the same thing. His name is Jehovah Makedesh, the God who sanctifies. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, God, that you have taken these jars of clay, these broken jars of clay, and you have set us aside for this high and noble purpose of living a holy life unto you, serving you as king, a kingdom of priests in this generation. God, there are so many days we wake up and it seems like a typical day and we're just typical people, but Father, that is not the case at all. This is the day the Lord has made and you have set us aside to serve you in it. So God, let us have eyes to see and ears to hear God, all the opportunities you set before us. God, help us to shine as lights in this generation. God, let us be content with being separate from the world. Let us not be ashamed of that calling. God, when everyone else is seeking the approval of the world, may we be content with seeking your approval and being content with your eyes watching all that we're doing. So we love you, Father. We commit the rest of our day to you. Thank you. We pray these things in your son's name. And the church said with me, amen. God bless you.
4: Find a spot. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be
0: This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. An email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation.
5: Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. As you start the summer season, what kind of precious memories would you like to create with your children? Around this time of year, I usually ask God, Lord, what would you like me to teach John this summer? I first learned the power of this simple prayer in 2016 when my son was 12. I was surprised by his answer, but I knew it was God when he led me to teach John the book of Proverbs. As we studied a few verses daily, God faithfully guided me to different topics to teach him relating to this beautiful book of wisdom such as living a life of purity, worship, wisdom, destiny, making right choices, and godly relationships. However, some days I struggle to share these topics with my son, not knowing if he would really understand or even remember these scriptures later in his life. But our God is so faithful. He knew exactly what John was about to face in the next season of his life in public high school. When John became a freshman, I began to see the fruit of God's Word spring up in his life as I watched my son learning to make daily choices, to live a life of purity, to share his faith and values with classmates, and to stand up for truth despite peer pressure. Temptations, misunderstandings, and pain. Proverbs chapter twenty two verse six says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The Hebrew word for train is hanak, which means to train up, dedicate, and discipline. I know I cannot be the mother I am called to be without God's grace and truth. So I humbly pray on my needs every day, trusting His promises as I walk with John and train him to navigate the ups and downs of his teenage years. My brothers and sisters, how about you? What are you dreaming for your children and family this summer? God has a great Plan and vision for you and your loved ones. No matter what you are going through right now, do you truly believe that He will restore and fulfill His dreams for your family? Let's pray. Father, as we come into Your holy presence, we cry out to You for our families. Ignite our hearts with holy passion and divine hunger to passionately seek You and pursue Your presence together. As a family, restore family altars in our homes to build arcs of true worship saturated in your unfailing love, living truth, and the holy sanctuary of your grace. Lord, restore the biblical foundation of your design for marriage and family. Bless every wife to be submitted and tenderly devoted to her husband out of respect and honor for his position and authority as a protector and head of their household for this is a beautiful illustration of her devotion and submission to you bless every husband to be filled with cherishing and selfless love for his wife just as you loved the church and demonstrated your love for your bride by giving up your life for her Father, we dedicate our children to You. Help us to raise them with loving discipline and wise counsel that brings the revelation of Your divine nature and the power of Your truth in their lives. Fill us with Your grace and wisdom to train our children with Your teaching and instruction preparing them for the unique calling and destiny that you have for each of them. Let our lives reflect the light of Christ-likeness and be the inspiration of faith for the next generation. Bless our children with teachable and humble hearts to honor, respect, and obey their parents in everything, for this is pleasing to you, Lord. Father, we pray for every member of our families who are hurting physically and emotionally right now. Heal every disease in their bodies and restore broken family relationships. Restore the hearts of fathers and mothers to their children and heal the pain of anger, rebellion, bitterness, and unforgiveness. Unite the hearts of generations as families of faith, bound in love, guided by peace, sanctified by truth, and revived by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for single parents and families in crisis. Comfort their hearts with your grace, strengthen their inner man with your power, and restore their trust in your goodness and unfailing love. Surround them with a loving community of God, and bless them with your divine health and faithful provision. We glorify your holy name, for you, mighty God, will carry out your divine purposes in us and in our families infinitely more than we could ever pray, hope, or dream through your miraculous power at work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.